Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. You know what I want? <laughs> I want to talk Everybody, welcome back to the Pull Up Trey podcast. That's right. It's not even Trey introducing it. I know that's been the case the past couple of times, but I've taken it back. The introduction, as it were. I am Samson Folk. I'm here with, of course, Trevon Heath. Many of you know him as Trey. And uh, we like to talk about basketball. Most importantly, the Raptors and the league at large. Trey, how the hell are you doing, man? I'm doing good. I'm a year older today, so that's always it's always cool. Um, you've had a really good week, um, blowing up and stuff. Big article, a little, little plug here and there. That's actually, yeah, that's, I completely forgot in my hardly awakened stupor. It's your birthday, man. We're doing a birthday podcast. That's um, it. you know, there's, there's that, that famous tweet that's like, all, uh, the men you put on this earth to build houses are, you know, recording podcasts or something like that. Did you ever think you'd record a podcast on your birthday? I didn't. I didn't either, but I, I, to be honest, I can't build a house either. So, like, podcasting is probably an option. <laughs> well, you're like the modern man. You know, I'm yeah. a bit antiquated. I come from Yokelville. I, I build homes and stuff like that in my downtime. You, you're like, you know, fast paced in the city, making moves. Is that accurate? Yeah, uh, I don't know about making moves, but <laughs> modern. That was a trap. Speaking of making moves, by the way. The Pulp Trade Podcast has a sponsor, Queensway Automotive Group. And so the big thing here is that they wanted to sponsor people within the GTA. Why? Because they are located within the GTA from Mississauga to Ajax up to Georgetown. They have locations everywhere. They have over 150 used cars from 10K to 250K. And basically, they just want to help help people with vehicles. If you need to get out of a lease, get into one. If you need to purchase a car, you need help with work on your car. Whatever you need, as far as that goes, Queensway Automotive Group, they sponsor the podcast. Thank you for doing so. And if anybody wants to help out or is interested in that at all, we have a code in the bio. You can click that. And if you ever need help with anything as far as cars go, getting into one, getting out of one, whatever that looks like, Queensway Automotive Group, something to consider. And yes, the link is in the bio. Feel free to click it. Helps the show, helps the sponsor, all that good stuff. Speaking of driving, Trey. We are here to talk about Pascal Siakam. I'll give you the numbers right off the bat. If I told you that in the first 27 games of the season, he was driving about 17 times per game. And well, not about, he was driving 17 times per game on average and scoring 10.4 points on those drives. Does that sound like a a good, healthy number to you? Very healthy. It's towards the top of the league. So, yeah. It was really great. It was a massive part of his offense. And one of the number, well, and also on top of that, we're looking at a guy who was responsible for 70% of his own looks at the rim. Huge number. That's what you love to see. Why do we love to see that? Well, it's dependable. It's something that anybody who's analyzing basketball, you track this stuff. This is what you want to see. Why is dependable rim looks important? Because you want to get to the rim and you can't control for when people will pass you into the rim. It's just it's just less dependable for an offense. And in the 33 games since, Pascal's drives per game are closer to 10. They're at about 11. His points per game off of drives is closer to 6. And the amount of unassisted baskets he gets at the rim in the time since then is uh, 42%. So basically what's happened is Pascal, to start the season, the first half, was a guy who could get to the rim all the time for his own offense. And since then, since January 2nd, to be exact, that just hasn't been the case at all. Why do you think this is? Because this is a significant drop-off. Yeah. Um, I think, like, obviously, like, the biggest, like, 
overlay is is the minutes. Like you saw something similar with Fred, where you you were seeing like him reach like the apex of probably his skill and talent, and Pascal was probably there in that first stretch of the season. And obviously, those minutes are very tasking. And the fact that majority of his buckets come unassisted, where he's facing a shell a shell defense and having to actually create for himself, hit a mid range shot often off the dribble is very taxing. And the defense that the Raptors also play in itself are very tasking as well for Pascal. So I would think that's the the biggest factor as well. But I also I just wonder if defenses are just realizing like Fred Van Vliet isn't shooting at a 40% clip that he was the season before. OG still some inconsistencies. So like teams are obviously selling out to stop him as well. So I think it's a factor of like the minutes as well as like we haven't shot as well as I think some of our shooters potentially like could possibly do. So when I think about that, the lack of shooting, I think that that more so intersects with the earlier season stuff. You know, there's been a little bit of a renaissance as far as it goes with OG and especially Fred lately. And when I think about Pascal not having the support of shooters, I do think about the earlier part of the season rather rather than now. Um, I think there was a a space in time probably between the middle of January and when Jakob Pertl got there where Pascal, it was a couple things happening. The shooting was starting to trend in a positive direction, not for Pascal, but for the team. And Pascal was tailing off as far as his offensive production. Then Jakob joins the team. And this is something we can notice over, you know, Pascal, the past however many games where he's scoring less than 15 points, right? You yep. see a couple games like that. It hasn't gone that well. But we also see Jakob Pertl in there, improving the team immensely in a lot of ways, but also cramping the spacing and this has made it so that teams get to bring a lot more attention to pascal's counters and one of pascal's counters and the thing that we've been seeing a lot lately is post-ups he is at his best when he's electric healthy and on point when he is facing up because he's a really gifted athlete he can beat guys in space that hasn't been happening as often since he got injured since you know a certain part of the season and we have pascal going to post-ups the post-ups are less tenable less valuable with Jakob on the floor because the defensive line is just closer to him as a whole and i'm really interested to see how pascal counters the lack of spacing as far as his process because what's dictated a good or bad offensive game lately for pascal has been his catch-and-shoot three-pointer. You know, just last night, he hits 25 points, and it's because he went he hit three threes. None of them pull-ups. This is all catch-and-shoot. In good games, it's like four for eight from downtown, and it's, you know, hit or miss as far as his driving game. It did look better against the Thunder, but then again, he did have size a size, a size advantage. Yeah. Everybody did against the Thunder, too. So I'm really interested to see how he kind of leans on his counters because they're not his strongest part of the game. When we think of like Jason Tatum, for example, who, man, his driving game is elite, like elite, 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 even for a guy who a lot of people complained went to the jump shot too often. But if the driving game gets taken away from Tatum for a day, a week, something like that, he can fall back on a pull-up three-pointer and it's like, it's efficient basketball. He can also slide into like these drive and kick situations where he gets these really advantaged closeouts and everything like that. Pascal, what do you think? Like, what does that look like to you? Him trying to not not necessarily emulate Tatum, but emulate a lot of the stars who he kind of occupies a similar space as in that regard. Yeah, I think for him, it's probably not like a, a pull up or catch and shoot three that just as we've seen thousands of shots, that's just not going to be, if he shoots league average, like we're very happy with how he, he shot for me. It's probably like his two dribble pull up from mid range. That's usually really effective, especially early in the season where even when teams were, were shelling against him and they're putting um, a really long defender, he was able to hit that over, over people consistently. And that also opened up his driving game because they had to, come a little closer to him. So I think that 
becoming more of a weapon is probably the most useful. And then with that, he can counter that with a quick dump off to Jakob, which is we've seen his hands are very good and that will lead to like very easy points. That's yeah, that's a great point. I think that there's a lot of value for Pascal to mine as far as using Jakob because Pascal, same as anybody else on the Raptors, hasn't had like a dependable big to throw the ball into who will finish plays all the time. Like he, whether it's Ken Birch or Precious Achua or Aaron Baines, even Marcus Saul, these aren't guys who, like Mark, as great as he was for the Raptors, he's like, he's a legend. He won a championship there. He was at like, a, you know, you, you have the term elder statesman under you right now. That's what he was. Yeah. He, he was never really a big offensive guy with the Raptors, as good as he was. And even Serge, by the time Pascal had, ball handling possessions was not really that type of guy either. Pascal has to learn and get better equipped to playmake to these styles of players like Jakob. That is something he has to get better at. And just playmaking in general, I think we've all seen Pascal. The playmaking is still good, obviously, yeah. well above average for his size, for his style, for his position. But he's made more mistakes as a playmaker over this past however many games than he was at the start of the season. And some of that is like some of the reads aren't as easy because he's not getting as hard doubled or he's not getting doubled from the bottom. He's getting doubled from the top. And that means longer passes, which can be jumped and all this kind of stuff. And there's more stunting. But I think that as far as the playmaking goes, that has to be there. And as far as the the pull-up, in mid-range and as far as just making those in general in the long mid-range over the past 33 games 41 percent, which is not elite mm. but is really good so at least he's finding a counter there it should be interesting to see how he finishes the season because the team the build of the team isn't really doing him any favors yeah. and he's also not in peak um i guess physical shape right now is probably the best thing to say Two guys who have really found their stride, though, Scotty and OG. I think a lot of people have enjoyed the past few games as far as, like, against the Lakers, they combined for 63. Just last night, they were great. OG's hitting every three that falls into his hands. Scotty is scoring at the rim. He's making great plays as a playmaker in the open floor. He's just done, and, and also his defense has looked better in a few of these games. What have you thought of the Raptors' young wing duo? It's, it's been great. I think for Scotty, his role has probably become more simplified, especially after the break and with Jakob. He's going to get the ball in transition. He's our point guard. He utilizes those possessions. And then also you're seeing a lot of the stuff that probably won him rookie of the year. He's hitting his mid-range shot a lot more often. He's able to counter that also with the post-up. And when he's able to do those two things, he's a bit more dangerous. What you saw early in the year, he would get the ball probably high post and the possession, the advantage would be him getting a pulse-up and hopefully getting someone to crash in on him. But now he's able to utilize a fadeaway into that straight-line drives when the Raptors are playing a lot faster, and that's been helping him a lot more. And then just the fact that he's able to, like you saw, he loves a no-look pass. He's able to hit Jakob with that quite often, and they've been very good together. With um, OG, obviously, like, he was going to positively regress as, like, a shooter, and he's done that really well, especially, like, post-wrist um, injury. Mm-hmm. And- I think what's been great is that you're seeing some of the driving pop that he had earlier in the year. Like um, yesterday, he's able to have the bounce through a Euro step, which is a, a massive positive. Throughout the year, he was doing well, but then defenses finally realized like he's a force driving in the lane. So they clogged up the lane and he was having trouble navigating and getting to the rim. But as you're seeing now, um, Jakob is finishing a, at a level where you can't just pull off of him on a on straight line drives. And OG's been able to utilize that to finish against contact and utilize his strength and have some of that same success they had earlier in the year. Back to Scotty, there's this thing, right? Aesthetics kind of dominate yeah. how we talk about basketball. And and for a good reason. It's we watch it. It's a visual medium. Um people like how Scotty's finishes at the rim look relative to Pascal's, for example. You know what I'm talking about? Like there's yeah. There's a, a strength, I think, that people appreciate. There's a level of um, for sure. 
Yeah, I, I like to hear what you think about the difference between those two and which you prefer, if you think it's a big deal, all that kind of stuff. I think the the major difference, like Pascal definitely finishes with finesse. You see uh, uh, it's a counter move leading into a, a finger roll that lightly goes into the rim, whereas Scotty, he's usually running 20 miles an hour. He's finishing at the lane or he's using his strength to finish over. I probably prefer the Pascal way just because the amount of like skill that it takes to to often do a do a twi- do a tween turn into a spin finish away from the defense and score and he's consistently doing that with five guys looking at him whereas um, Scotty is uh, especially in transition probably is more fun just simply because when he gets the ball you don't know if he's gonna throw a lob he's going to finish in the lane or is he gonna dunk over somebody but I. Considering, like, I play basketball and looking to the skill, it's more of the similar finishing like you would see with, a, like, a DeRozan where it's very crafty and it takes a lot of work to actually get there. So I would say Pasco. When I think about it, it's because the touch doesn't seem to be affected. Like, both have, I think, objectively really great touch. Yeah. I talked about this with Sam Vassini when he was on the podcast, and, you know, he was talking about how Scotty maybe that touch had come back down to earth because when we had talked, it was December and Scotty was having a down year as a scorer. I think relative to most people's expectations at that point in time, it's come around in a big way. His playmaking was still good back then for what it's worth, but Scotty being a guy who kind of has all of that power, but doesn't sacrifice touch, I think is a super big deal. And so kind of a fun thing is that Scotty shoots 66% at the rim Pascal shoots 72%. That's a big difference and an important one. But speaking of that power game and kind of the the drawback of Pascal is some of the foul baiting that hasn't gone well in, in that short mid-range and the fact that he's put up a lot of tough shots that have been affected by contact is he's shooting 41% from there on the season. This is a guy who's typically shot north of 47% over the past couple of seasons. That's a big difference in his his shot chart. Scotty's a guy who's hitting 50% still. That's an interesting aspect is that Pascal obviously is so much more wiggly around there. And part of that benefit is that being wiggly and being kind of that type of guy means you'll probably get to the free throw line more often because you're getting guys off balance. But Scotty is just like incorrigible, you know? He can't be moved off of his spot. He really, he's able to get to the point in the air that he wants to get to against guys who are bigger against guys who are smaller. And there's that ability to negate the defensive matchup against himself with, with pickup points, with strength and never sacrificing that touch. So I think that it's really cool that the Raptors have two of the most, you know, it isn't ideal in the sense of like how the NBA is played today, where it's like, you know, the ideal shot chart at the rim three-pointers, like pull-up shooting, talent, all that kind of stuff. You and I both wanted Donovan Mitchell to be traded to the Raptors, right? We both know why that is, pull-up shooting from downtown, the major motivator. But having two of the highest volume forwards in the NBA as far as short mid-range goes, it does make you appreciate that style of the game, and it does give fans and analysts kind of an insight to that pocket of the game that you wouldn't get otherwise. It's, it's such a weird place to get a lot of points from but both scotty and pascal do it and they do it in different ways so it interests me to like no end um og's defense when he first came back it was uncharacteristically bad and by bad i mean relative to his own expectations he's still a plus defender but this is a guy who wants to compete for a defensive player of the year wants to be all defense um blake wrote a really great piece about why you know, OG is so valuable as a versatile defender, as an all-NBA defense candidate. You don't have to have read that piece. I'm telling the listeners they can. But what do you think? Not Blake, that loser. What does Trevon think? What does Trey think? Um, in terms of, like, his defense, I think, um, like, kind of what we saw is, like, obviously him coming back from injury. And you saw that he wasn't really utilizing his hand. And the big part of OG is that he's able to use his strength and manipulate where the defender's actually going. And having a defender like Jakob where you can now funnel people to is like 
super dependable. And I think he's figured that out along the way as his like wrist has healed. You haven't seen him like um, grimace after possessions like he were before. So I think a lot of that he was playing handicapped in a situation where he wasn't able to utilize his like greatest advantage as a defender. What's so this is this was talked about. This was reported by Josh Lewinberg right earlier in the season that people in the organization were unhappy with OG's willingness to play through injuries. We talked about this a little bit at the time, but now that we've stepped away from it, OG is no longer mired in a bunch of trade talks, and he's also playing through injuries once again, because it does seem over the years, OG's missed games, obviously, but it seems like he objectively has played through injuries. He played through a broken finger for a month. He is very or was very clearly playing through a wrist thing we saw it on the court as you said defensively we saw it that he didn't want to shoot three-pointers like this is a guy who's taking a bunch of volume now in these games who really didn't want to do anything with the ball seemingly because of an injury what do you think about OG's standing in the team now that the you know headed into summer the trade stuff is died down. He's playing like the best basketball. Eric Kareen had a tweet about it. Went something like, prior or during the early part of the season, OG's perfect, keep him forever. Middle part of the season, trade him. We need to you know, trade him, replace him with Precious. Yeah. That was a popular conversation, one that we had, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and now OG's perfect again. Where, where do you stand on the OG discussion? Um, I... My position hasn't really changed. Like, if he wants to stay, I, I, I would love to to continue having him on the team. Be simply because, like, he's somewhat irreplaceable on a team. If if not for Pascal, I'd probably say he would just him and probably Jakob and Pascal. Then OG, just simply because at the point of attack, there's no one that can on the team that can do exactly what he does. And then when he's shooting well, with him and Fred are shooting like to their career levels. It provides a level of shooting where you can get driving lanes that now you're seeing recently, like with Scotty, Pascal, um, even Jakob getting dump offs, things like that, where it opens up the team a lot more. Um, with um, OG, you probably can probably put a cap on like where that ceiling is going to go. We've given it probably two or three years. And right now you can probably expect he's 18 point per game score. He, he can finish at the lane. He can provide some tertiary scoring and and shoot the ball at a above average level. And I think that's really good at the current current state that he is in his career. If the Raptors want to get to where they're going and they gave up their pick next year to get to a certain point, they have to keep him in order to fight for a top four seed next year. There's been this wisdom that OG is the guy who is the soft reset yeah. really quickly. And I don't blame people for thinking that because – He's talked about as extremely valuable. He isn't, he is both gettable and extremely valuable. I think is kind of the, why did people talk about Kevin Durant in the summer? You know, why did people talk about Kevin and Kevin Durant and the Raptors in the summer? Not necessarily because KD came out and said, I want to go to the Raptors, but because the Raptors were one of three or four teams who could conceivably put together a package to get him. Like the, the ramifications of how we discuss players is all about who can get them and what for. And Pascal was a guy who is was seen as too valuable for a lot of teams, a bit too rich, right? Yeah. And Fred was seen as not as rich as people want relative to impact. So none of those are exciting. OG was the guy who it was like other teams want to trade a lot for him. And he's not the best player on the team. So, i.e., we can discuss it openly. He's not Scotty. He's not Pascal. Who knows? And as somebody who has firmly been like, no, you keep OG has been my stance. It's nice to see him playing this well again. And I'm in the same boat as you that if OG wants to stay in Toronto, I think it's imperative that the Raptors keep him because he's just really undervalued as a player. Yeah. Um, one question I probably have is you saw with someone who's like he's been kind of compared to for most of his career, like Mikhail Bridges. He's he sort of had similar shot distribution, obviously not similar um, rim pressure that they provide, and he was able to break out of a very big way on a big team. 
Do you think that's influential for a player like OG? And also, do you think he's capable of doing a similar, um, having similar impact on a new team? Say like a lower level team like the Pacers, for example, who he's been linked to. So you talked about, you know, I'm adjacent. I don't necessarily watch the NFL. I used to watch in like from 2011 to 2014. I watched a lot of the Eagles. I really liked um, Shady McCoy, Deshaun Jackson, and Michael Vick. Like that Eagles team I thought was super exciting. And But you guys talk about the NFL. And so I learned about the franchise tag and how the top paid players at a position kind of all impact each other and they're standing in the league. OG, of course, seeing Mikhail Bridges score the hell out of the basketball on a new team, presumably, you know, is thinking about money that that guy's going to get. Is thinking about guys who he plays a premier position in the NBA where it's not only about defense, but it's about shot creation and initiating possessions. And that's something that not only has been reported, but I, I will say like, that's true. OG wants that. And it doesn't necessarily mean there's a trade request, but players can want different things than an organization. The tough thing is that Mikhail Bridges doesn't have a lot of the same gifts that OG has as far as kind of bulldozing his way to the rim and being such an innately gifted finisher at the rim. OG isn't what people think of when they think innately gifted at the rim. When you're that strong and that long and you dunk that high a percentage of the time, OG gets to the rim a decent amount of time. He puts the ball down and he finishes basically everything there. Mikhail Bridges, though, has far more finesse as a ball handler and his pull-up jumper is in really good shape. This is something that he's been working on relative to OG is that Mikhail was like a little things king on offense where he he would come off of pin downs with really great footwork. He would find his, you know, he would be very finesse-like working that. He'd catch you know, drag the pivot, put the ball down, put a guy in jail, get into a pull-up shot. And that's just, Mikhail couldn't turn the corner, put the ball down, take two strides, and like finish hard at the rim like OG could. But he certainly could pull up way better. And pulling up and a little bit of a handle, that stuff is what we consider scalable, right? Like you can take those skills and turn it into more possessions. Mikhail is turning that into more possessions and good ones. Like pull-up shooting is it's making everything work as far as how he's scoring at the NBA level now. And OG just doesn't have that part of his game. He probably, you see a guy you're compared to, go to a new team, yeah. get lots of possessions, score the hell out of the basketball, get a lot of love. It has to affect him, I'm certain. Um, it would affect anybody. But is that what OG needs? For himself, he'd probably say yes. Yeah. Raptors, another team, he probably doesn't care where. That's what he wants. Um, as far as realistically, I think he's in a great position with the Raptors, especially we see lately the Raptors are more egalitarian as far as their offensive process, and there's been more possessions for OG lately to create anyway. They'll have to, in the summer, sell OG sell Pascal, sell Scotty, sell Fred, everybody on a new look offense that is more egalitarian. And maybe that's what saves the, not not that it needs to be saved. This isn't hard-hitting reporting. But maybe that's what kind of puts the relationship between OG, his expectations, and the offense in a better place is how they kind of put everything back together in the offseason. But I don't know, man. It's, it's complicated because it's players' expectations – organizational expectations and then the whims of the market um, are not always congruent. In fact, they're often incongruent, but I like, what, what are your thoughts? I think he's in a similar position as um, Jeremy Grant was in Denver mm. where like, he's clearly in like his most maximized position, but obviously the role that he has doesn't lead to the, probably the salary that he, he wants to achieve down the line. Jeremy Grant went to Detroit. he, had more creation juice than probably anyone thought. Mm-hmm. And now that he was traded to Portland, he replicated some of those things and he's going to make more money next year than if he ever stayed in Denver. So I think they're probably in the same situation. What the Raptors have to do is kind of show that they can win a title. And I think that Denver team at the time didn't look like they were going to like win a title in the future. So it was harder 
to sacrifice the opportunity to make more money. That's a great point. Yeah, that's actually, and especially because Jeremy was playing better. He was playing more meaningful basketball with Denver as well. He even so much so like tertiary players swing playoff series all the time, especially in the, in the newer age of the NBA where there's a lot more parity and it's the eighth player on a roster is now insanely skilled relative to however long ago, right? Like trying the, the level of basketball, the level of skill is just in a way different place. Guys from especially one through four on a roster yeah, of course the best player is going to help swing series, but like two, three, four of these guys swing series all the time. Um, Jamal Murray hasn't even ever been an all-star, but he completely flipped a couple series on their heads, you know, a couple years ago. Jeremy Grant was really great for the Nuggets and left um, saying he wanted to play for a black coach, a black organization, which was a big motivator for him. And also because he wanted to try his hand at creation. OG. I don't know what's going to happen. He's not in the same position that Jeremy was because Jeremy was a free agent. OG isn't as of yet, and um, we'll see, man. But it that's a that's a good come that's a good comparison because yeah, as far as like the creation, Jeremy hadn't shown really anything, and he was like a you know kind of like an early sexy all star pick in his first year with Detroit. Mm -hmm. Of course, that never came to fruition, and he's in a similar position with Portland now as he was with. Denver, I guess, but also, as you said, with more um, earning capability probably going forward. So, yeah, that's good. I want to talk about a guy with more earning capability going forward, Fred. I He's been all-star level since Jakob came. I don't even think that's – I don't even think that's debatable. Yeah. He's just been so efficient. The playmaking has been so good. The shooting has come around. He is now – Considering Pascal, we talked about at the start of the podcast, getting, you know, falling off a little bit, well, between a little bit and a decent amount, right? Fred's pick and roll possessions have become the major, uh, the major engine of the Raptors offense. Thoughts on him, man, because he's, we, we talked a lot about Fred this season, not in like, not in friend, not in slanderous terms or anything like that, but certainly not in complimentary terms all the time. Yeah. I think what's the the greatest part of like what's happened is that it's happening towards the later part of the season. And the huge concern with him is like the minutes that have bogged down towards the season. So the fact that he's peaking towards the end of the season bodes really well for a potential play and run. But um, now that he's become more empowered as a passer because he has such a large target, he's more mm-hmm. useful as as a player simply because prior he was more dependent on whether his shot was falling down. And now that he has a a good outlet that can finish at the rim, provide some vertical spacing for him, it is a really good thing. And then also the defense at, at the point of attack is a lot better. I think what the game where things really turned around, like probably for the fans and what we saw is that the Wizards actively tried to put Brad, Bradley Beal on Fred Van Vliet and he stonewalled him every time. And that what, that's what won the Raptors the actual game is that the, the Wizards' offense bogged down because they couldn't get possessions and they created tons of turnovers and turned and turned the game into their favor. So I think with him becoming a bit of a, a better defender there, it obviously helps the scheme a lot more and you can be a bit more conservative. And although Shea did, did his thing and he's a massive star, the Raptors still made him work for it yesterday and they put him in positions that he didn't want to be in. And he had to click out to shooters like Lou Dort, who necessarily isn't in a, posi- in a, isn't in a position to keep advantages in the same way that he is. So I think that's really good to see that he's probably become a playmaker that no one thought he could be. And with the shot coming back and the defense becoming um, at the bare minimum neutral to good, the the Raptors are just a lot more dangerous. So we're going to win tons of minutes with their lineup. There's a there's a relationship here that's been symbiotic and in a very complementary way. Um, Fred and Yak, not only in the pick and roll, like you alluded to him being a big target and, and Yak being able to finish plays that other we talked about this, you know, with Pascal is like yeah. there just haven't been rollers and finishers at the big man position for these guys on the roster in a long ass time, like not since Jonas Valanciunas, yeah. who was awesome 
but he he didn't even as far as playing with Pascal and Fred as creators, man, three games, maybe something like that. Um, that's that's super important, not only for Fred, but also for Jakob, who's relative to any other part of his career is kind of scoring the hell out of the basketball yep. with the Raptors and doing it on hyper, hyper efficiency. It's been good for everybody. And defensively, you talked about the more conservative scheme. A more conservative scheme can protect some guys and kind of illuminate why their gambles are so bad in an aggressive scheme. Like gambling in an aggressive scheme can take it from, you know, a daring scheme to overboard. Gambling in a conservative scheme with a player who's really clever off ball and really clever as far as rotation and timing digs like Fred, it can become quite complimentary. His steals have gone up quite a lot lately. His shooting, like he's shooting 38% from three on almost 10 attempts over the last 11 games. He's averaging 2.5 steals over the last 11 games. It's just like Jakob came in and really helped solidify Fred's role and really makes it way more important that the Raptors have that lead guard because lead guards and good bigs are like a, a match made in heaven. And the Raptors, as we well know, have been neglecting this particular partnership for some time. So seeing both of these guys play as well as they have, it just, it rocks, dude. Um, somebody who has been negatively affected, maybe maybe that's too harsh. I think this is mostly more squarely on Precious's shoulders. I think that he had an avenue to minutes. Yeah, I think that he's had opportunities. And for the first time since... He turned the corner. I think that Precious's lack of playing time is just completely on him. There's been times in the past where I've thought that he's not getting a fair shake, really. Yeah. He's just been really bad. He had uh, did not play coach's decision last night. What are your thoughts on Precious? Because we both really enjoy the Precious experience. Yeah. I Yesterday, it was pretty sad. I think it was the right decision. Which is which sucks to say, um, like with with Precious, um, Nick Nurse kind of uh, illuminated that yesterday that being the five probably doesn't make the most sense is a reason why Coloco was was brought up and playing him at the four, utilizing him as a wing defender is like the best use of his skill, which I agree with. But some of the residual effects of having a seven foot center means that. Everyone around him needs to operate more as um, a perimeter player and find other unique ways to, to actual score. Precious hasn't had that second half of the year bump. It kind of looks like that that shooting was more of a hot streak than future success. So his driving lanes and his ability to, to kill defenders on closeouts isn't there naturally as it was previously um, pre-Yak. And that's affected his playing time a lot. And then also just from the defensive end, you haven't seen that same sort of uh, excellence that you probably saw earlier in the year where you thought this guy could win a probably a defensive player of the year one day. People have talked about it. OG talked about it recently. As odd as it is recently, like Precious is able to have that impactful game after a string of just terrible ones. And OG is like, oh yeah, he could win defensive player of the year one year. And it's true. Yeah, Precious is one of the most gifted athletes in the NBA. Um, We've talked about this before. I, well, I've talked about this on the podcast <laughs> way too much. People, people have made fun of my Precious optimism. Sometimes it looks really smart. Like I've noticed things. Sometimes it looks maybe not so smart. Like now where he can't find minutes on... It's not necessarily a strong bench that the Raptors have, yeah. but it's not so strong that it's easy to fall out of the rotation. Precious should, given his talents, given what he's good at, and given the Raptors' needs, he should be able to find minutes guaranteed every night. The fact that he can't, for the first time in a long time, is really um, a condemnation of how he's playing right now. Yeah. It's disappointing and what do you like if we're saying that's a hot streak and the hot streak we're referring to 3.9 attempts per game, 42% from three post all-star break, 
it was like 45% on his catch and shoots. This created not only a bunch of points for him as far as a guy who was finishing possessions as a shooter, but created for Precious a really valuable play in the pump and go because he's such explosive athleticism. This is where we saw him dunk on like six different guys. He, his touch at the rim improved when he was doing it at pace instead of like the, you know, pump fake, pump fake, trying to finish over guys at the rim, like a big man playing more wing E was really good for his career, um, especially offensively. But if that shot isn't there, none of this makes sense because he's not going to draw any of that. And he certainly doesn't have the, finesse or guile to navigate those super tight and contested spaces that's basically that's what stars do and i don't blame precious for not being able to do that but i do blame precious for a lack of care in making contact on screens finding the pacing and paying attention to what his teammates need as far as cutting filling all that kind of stuff goes and then a lack of precision on defense too like It's just, even when he was not playing good defense as far as like decision-making last year, he was so gifted he could find his way into value. This this was also kind of like Chris Boucher, who length and tenacity can carry a lot of weight on that end. But not only is Precious making, I think, difficult to justify decisions and just flat-out mistakes, but there's kind of a listlessness to his play right now. So nothing's going right. A guy who just had a bunch of things go right, though, Coloco. Um, we talked about Coloco a decent amount at the start of the season. Yeah. I know you like Coloco. I like Coloco. He's had time in the G League, what like we wanted, we talked about. Mm-hmm. He's come back. He's been pretty good. What, what do you make of uh, the backup five in Toronto? I think with, unfortunately, like it came at the risk of like Precious not really having a space on the team. The Raptors make more sense with having uh, another true big as their their backup, just simply because um, they they don't have to gamble as much on possessions. Coloco provides some deterrence at the rim for defenders, although he's still figuring out his way through rotations. His ability to recover and provide um, rim protection is still um, plus value, and you kind of saw like with the Raptors. Um, Having Pascal with um, a Boucher and Coloco with tons of length is going to lead to turnovers and um, a way for Pascal to operate with the bench and still have some some value. Because you kind of saw that with one starter plus bench, the Raptors have kind of been losing a lot of those minutes. And that's simply because nobody else around them can do anything. With um, Boucher and Coloco, there's tons of length. Both of them are going to cut. They're going to crash the glass and create havoc there, which was very useful yesterday. And you're going to probably see that with a lot of teams just because it's such a funky lineup and it's very difficult for most teams to to match up with. So I'm really happy with what Coloco was doing. Obviously, the big thing is um, him finishing possessions. That's one thing he's really struggled with and one thing Precious is really good with. But um, if that comes along, that will probably come along more next year with added strength. He's going to be very valuable and uh, a big reason into heading into the plan and obviously next year um, if uh, if the Raptors are going to have a productive bench and something that the team can rely on. I've been – Coloco is a, a net rating god. Like the Raptors just win minutes with him on the floor. Yeah. A lot of that is related to early season noise. Like when I was looking into this, I was like, how the hell I and I people might remember I watched the defensive film with Coloco. I watched every pick and roll he defended for the first two and a half months of the season. It was a lot. I've yeah. seen a lot of the guy's defense. I've talked to him specifically about it. I've watched him react to his own defense. The good and the bad. And he definitely understands the Raptors scheme. And he understands similar to the way Jakob talks about it, that his inherent um, sensibilities or inclinations defensively kind of go against what the Raptors ask their bigs to do. They want you to step out pretty far. Yeah. They want you to, and they want ball pressure from their bigs. And that's not necessarily inherent, but Coloco, I think does a pretty good job of trying to catch up and his length and willingness to try is such a benefit to the Raptors on that end. And when a guy wins minutes, 
despite it being noisy early on in the season where there was a weird streak of bad three-point shooting when he was on the floor that wasn't necessarily tied to his impact but still affects his net rating. When the Raptors won two games by a combined like 75 points and he played a lot of minutes in those games, that affects net rating. But outside of that too, there's been some games, yes, where he just looked like he couldn't hang. But there's been already more than a handful of games at the NBA level where Coloco has checked in, done his part, and really benefited the Raptors. And that's not only as like important for the Raptors now and against OKC where they get, you know, 10, 12 minutes out of Coloco and it's good, but it's just like, it's really cool. A second round big just gets to jump in and he's giving you a little bit of pop. And, you know, we've seen this out of guys like Xavier Tillman had this happen with the Grizzlies before falling out of the rotation. He wasn't able to kind of carve that out for a long time. I think Coloco has the juice to stay to get more contracts in the NBA. And that already makes it a win as far as I'm concerned. I think there's a lot of good stuff happening with Coloco that um, I think it was a really good pick. And the Raptors, they've missed on some lately. They've missed on free agent signings. They've missed on MLE stuff. Hitting on a second rounder is really important, even though it was an early second rounder. So as far as Coloco goes, I'm glad it's on the way to being like a a success story um, for the organization, but most importantly for him, obviously. Agreed. I I think um, with him, just his role makes just a lot of sense. What you kind of see with um, Precious is that he doesn't um what he does well isn't a lot of the the big man things it mm-hmm. isn't um having good timing on a cutting so where you can dive into when pascal is um seeing two defenders um crowd he's a very good offensive rebounder but um turning an offensive rebound into a dunk for example and then obviously just the rim deterrence that he has um Coloco was a pick that i i wanted at around that that range so it it's really good to see that he's showing early signs of being um, productive and it isn't necessarily in the ways that um, you saw like with Delano where a lot of that was transition and like, how is that going to parlay into a half court offense when we get into the playoffs? I can see Coloco playing 10 minutes into a playoff game right now and having a role and blocking two shots. And we're all of us saying, wow, that was positive. We won those minutes. Let's see what he can do it more next year. There's also kind of, this is typically more fan casting, um, fan conversations, but I'm going to lean into it because people like that. Um, Learning from Pirtle, like that's that's a cool thing. I've talked about it on the podcast, is Pirtle, the use of his, he he gets sideways to find pacing as the role man, and he uses his pivot perfectly. Basically, he gets another step out of the role before putting the dribble down that most big men don't. And that messes up the timing of the help defense. It makes it gets him closer in proximity to the rim so that his dribble is more powerful. It means that not only the the low man, but tags and stuff like that, it messes up everybody's timing. And he's such a good um, finisher at the rim. Like Coloco is long. If he gets all the way to the rim after he puts some muscle on that body, more muscle than is already there, obviously. He's in great shape. We're a bunch of schlubs, yeah. but he, for relative to the NBA, he'll put a little bit of weight on, I'm sure. But learning from Pirtle, I think, will be extremely beneficial for him, too. So um, I know that's typically like, you know, I, I talked to you about this. I can't remember when I sent it to the group chat, maybe in the early part of the year. Like, that's the kind of stuff that I couldn't possibly know is going to be a benefit, but I'm just leaning towards optimism. And that's that's one of those things is like, this guy will learn from this other guy. We have no idea if he will learn. I mean, we said that Thad was going to teach everybody to do X and Y. Has that happened? Who knows? But um, we said the Raptors on this little five-game stand. We expected three and two or four and one. Now, there was a swing game. I thought that Denver was the swing game. Because we thought they were going to beat the Lakers. (laughs) They didn't beat the Lakers, however. But they did beat Denver. They did beat OKC. Minnesota, Milwaukee left. Are the Raptors going two and three, three and two, or four and one? I'm going to stick to what I said, three three and two. Um, With uh, Minnesota, I think it's a really good matchup for us, just simply because um, their their best source of offense is Anthony Edwards. 
And he hasn't necessarily figured out the processing to attack a lot of the things that the Raptors do in terms of blitzing, showing hard, and finding a way to to optimize like Rudy Gobert in a sense as an actual vertical threat. Mm-hmm. Um, they have Mike Conley who can do that, but he doesn't do the same put around the same amount of pressure on the defense or bend the defense nearly enough for I think the Raptors to really worry about him. I just say that about the Lakers and they lost. But, <laughs> but uh, I think they're going to beat Minnesota. I just think with the Bucks, Giannis is just playing at such a high level where it, it would be probably their most impressive win of the season if they beat the Bucks, who are peaking at the right time of the year. So I'm excited to see that game too. The Bucks are 50 and 20, man. Yeah. Like that's who is it? Phil Jackson has that famous quote about like you're in the contender space if you win 40 games before you lose 20. Yeah. It's like, man, what are you if you win 50 games before you lose 20? Like it's just yeah. 71% winning percentage. They are Insane. they are dominating the league. And yeah, Giannis is making that late push for MVP, which I think is really interesting. That's an interesting conversation that we haven't touched and I don't think we're interested in. No. Um I also I agree. I think that the Raptors are a good matchup for Minnesota, especially with Towns out. Yeah. I know everybody thinks the Raptors own Towns. I know that's <laughs> maybe a storyline that fans don't get to invest in with him being injured, which is too bad. But um, yeah, I think a win against Minnesota and a loss on a back to back against Milwaukee in yeah. Milwaukee. Um, yeah, I think that'll be um, that'll be kind of how it shakes out. Trey, we are shaking out though. That's the end of the podcast. How you feeling, man? Good. Um, good start to the day. Um, happy birthday to Baker, who I know you had on your pod. We have the same birthday as well. So happy birthday to him. Twin them. Yeah. Yep. Twins. Yeah. <laughs> let's let's actually let's yeah let's get a happy. If anybody wants to comment or whatever, either either Trey on social media or in the comment section. Happy birthday, Trey and Baker. Um, both of the fellows. Once again, a reminder: this podcast is sponsored, and we do thank the sponsor because it's nice to be, uh, I guess, supported, obviously. Um, They're from the GTA. They are very mindful about supporting people who work in sports in the GTA. It's something they're doing. Queensway Automotive Group. There is a link in the bio. You can click it and um, sort yourself out with all your car needs. Trey, thank you for sorting me out for all my podcast needs. It's been an absolute pleasure. Um, Listener, thank you for tuning in. If you're listening to this on YouTube, like the video, subscribe. Make sure you go to raptorsrepublic.com, subscribe there. That's the most important one. And if you're listening on the podcast channel, thanks for tuning in with us. And whether you got into this in the morning or at night, have a blessed day and goodbye.